Well, good morning and happy Easter. We are delighted that you are here today. Today, I want to talk about hope. This hope that Matt found. Easter hope. The life-changing hope God offers us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I do not offer you a dead, irrelevant Christ but a living, life-changing, omnipotent Christ, a Jesus who is not merely functionally helpful, but a Jesus who is transcendently true. And that's exactly Matt's story. It's not a story of Matt. It's a story of how Jesus, how the power of Jesus changes us from the inside out. And this morning, I want Matt for you. I want you to taste and see and know this power of the resurrection. So the question as we get started isn't whether or not we have hope. All of us exercise hope. The question is where do we place our hope? Christianity says there are really only two options, the creator or something in creation. Either we place our hope in God or something God has made, or the stuff of creation like your smarts, or your abilities, or your job, or you place your hope in in your family, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, your, your friends, this or that aspect of something you can control, something you want to do. For years, year after year, Matt placed his hope in himself and his own coping mechanisms that he mentioned. And it didn't work. Where are you placing your hope today? I mean Easter 2019. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about where we are with hope in our culture today, what the Bible tells us about resurrection, life-changing hope, and then I want to make a couple of applications. So imagine there are two women of the same age, same education, same temperament, and you hire both of them. And to both of them, you say, your job on this assembly line is to rivet part A into slot B and then get it to the next person. You will do this eight hours a day, five days a week. And you offer both of them the same breaks, the same schedule, the same environment, basically the same everything. Except to the first woman, you say, your salary will be $30,000 a year. And to the second woman, you say, your salary will be $3 million a year. A month goes by, and this first woman at $30,000 a year is overheard complaining, I hate this job, I can't do the job, this job is so boring, it's, it's so tedious, uh, it, I don't know if I'm going to make it. By the way, when I was in high school, I had an assembly line job, sort of like this, and it was so tedious and it was so boring, I got fired in my sixth day. 
So the first woman's complaining. The second woman, however, is totally different. She's overheard almost singing throughout the entire day. She talks about how much she loves everyone, loves the company, loves her job, loves life, and everything is just uh, beautiful. So here you have two human beings doing exactly the same thing. But one hates it and the other loves it. What's the difference? The difference is their expectations about the future. The point, isn't the, the point is not that money solves all our problems. It, it, it doesn't. The point is what we believe about our future controls our experience in the present. And we call that hope. Hope is to your soul what oxygen is to your lungs. It's what fills your life with love and joy and meaning and purpose. Like a young couple that just got engaged. Hope changes everything. The entire landscape. But there's a problem. And the problem is that today, in the West, hope is in decline. And there's so many different ways to illustrate it, but uh, just think over the last 10 to 15 years of all the TV shows, all the movies that are about zombies or the end of civilization, or the destruction of humanity, what we call uh, dystopia. Uh, now, if it was just one or two, it wouldn't be that big a deal, but it's one after another, after another, after another, and it's been going on for a decade and a half or so. And what is going on? Well, what they are telling us is that they reflect a culture-wide loss of hope. It's not going to end well. Now, here in the United States, isn't this why the suicide rate has increased by almost a third between 1999 and 2017, according to U.S. News and World Report recently? And shockingly, during this same period, get this, the suicide rate has significantly decreased in China and India. You see, when the United States was founded, it was founded on hope in God. But over the years, over time, as we became more secular, that hope in God gave way to hope in country in a variety of forms. So hope in our military power, or hope in our markets, or hope in our technology. And then if you fast forward to where we are today, we no longer have hope in God culture-wide. We no longer have hope in our uh, country culture-wide. Instead, we place our hope now in the only option we have left, and that is hope in self. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, the poet said. But it's not working today. This hope in self is not working. It's sort of like running an ultra-marathon, barefooted and in the snow. The terrain of life is just too difficult. It's just uh, too hard. 
Now I say all this because I want you to understand hope is important. It's the point of the two women. But hope today is in decline. Because personal autonomy and and a life all about self-gratification can't carry you the distance. So what's happened? Well, what's happened is our hope has been misplaced, tragically misplaced. So I want to look at a theological quote. If we could get this up on the screen. It's an important theological quote. The fact that jellyfish have survived for 600 million years despite not having brains gives hope to many people. Now, now think about this. Uh, We laugh at this. But we do a form of this all the time. Does comparing yourself to people that are less advantaged or people that are less capable uh, really give you hope? Uh, Does making as much money as you possibly can, getting the best uh, grades uh, that you possibly can, does that make you a better person, a better parent, a a better citizen? Does your team winning or parents, your children behaving or your bank account growing carry you through cancer? But that's where we are today. It's, as a matter of fact, it's a tragedy of the 21st century because we have severed the sacred order from the social order. And as a result, we live in a culture today where rampant hopelessness is mixed in with rampant affluence. And from a historical perspective, that makes no sense whatsoever. What is the 21st century? It's becoming in the West, here in the United States, a culture of rampant hopelessness in the midst of rampant affluence. Now, let me transition and move to my second point. God knows all this. Uh, God knows that there is no ultimate basis for hope. for love, for meaning. There's no ultimate basis for you saying to someone, oh, you're beautiful. Or or saying, you know, this is right and this is wrong if God doesn't exist. God knows uh, the downward pull of our sinful, self-absorbed hearts to reduce everything to me, myself, and I. The big me, as David Brooks describes it where life revolves around a circle that I just draw around my feet. Now, God knows all these things, and that is exactly why on Good Friday God gave us Jesus to die in our place for our alienation, our self-centeredness. And on on Easter Sunday today, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead 
to give us hope, a life-changing hope, a hope, a crucifixion, resurrection hope that has completely changed my life, and as we saw in the video, totally changed Matt's life, and I want that for you today. So let me move now from hope today to I want to look at a story in the Bible of the power of hope to change a life and what that resurrection power looks like. So I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 26 in the New Testament. Paul is standing trial. But this is a big deal trial because Paul is standing before the two most powerful men in Israel, the king of the Jews, Agrippa, and the Roman governor. Now remember, Israel was Roman-occupied. The Roman governor, Festus. And Paul's life is at stake. Paul is facing a death sentence. And so from a human perspective, it's a really bad scene. And neither Agrippa, the Jew, or Festus, the Roman, really care much at all about Christianity. So I'm going to pick it up beginning in verse 2 of Acts chapter 26. We'll read several different sections. I'll make a couple comments as we go. Paul is speaking in verse 2, and he addresses King Agrippa. King Agrippa, the Jewish king now, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now let's skip down to verse 6. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am in trial today. Now did you catch that? It is because of my hope. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Why is our culture speaking generally in complete denial of God raising Jesus from the dead? In the verses I just read, Paul uses the word hope three times. In verse 8, we're told this hope is in the wonder uh, that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead on Easter. Now, this becomes a little more clear. Let's continue. Let's skip down to verse 22. But God has helped me this very day as I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. And here it is, that the Messiah would suffer, be crucified, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Now here Paul is talking about uh, the first Good Friday, uh, the first Easter, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in somewhat as, as a surprise to us today, Paul is telling us this is exactly what the Old Testament has taught from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament. 
But Paul is just warming up. And now we're about to see the power of the resurrection uh, swirling through Paul's life, the power of living by hope in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so let's pick it up in verse 24. At this point, Festus, now Festus is the Roman governor, the unbelieving Roman governor, interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul. He shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is, now this is a bold statement, is true. In other words, Paul is making a universal truth claim. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king, it's a reference to Agrippa, is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely. I prefer the translation boldly. I can speak boldly to him, and that is exactly what Paul is doing. So he goes on, and speaking to Agrippa, he says, I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. He's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets which predicted all this? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul replied, short time or long? I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Now there's two things I want you to note. Here Paul refutes the notion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a religious myth made up by his disciples. Paul is saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ is historically valid. So he says in verse 26, hey Agrippa, I mean you were there, you're the king of Israel. Um, uh, you know these events happened. Uh, they didn't happen in a corner. You know it took place. Now hear me. This is an exceptional and extraordinary argument for the historical reality of the resurrection. If Paul was making this up, the Jewish king and the Roman governor, both non-believers, would call him on it and he would immediately be executed. But Festus, when Festus speaks to Paul, Festus doesn't say, hey, Paul, you're wrong about this. Paul, or Festus attacks Paul's character and says, Paul, you're insane. Now, it sounds like a marriage argument to me. I mean, never mind the facts. This is what you did. This is who you are. This is how bad you are. So Festus isn't arguing history. He's attacking Paul's character. Now, I don't know why Agrippa and Festus refused to believe in Jesus. But I can tell you, uh, I do know that you can't get to the resurrection if you begin with a self-imposed bias that miracles don't exist. Never mind that the resurrection is the best attested fact in history. My worldview doesn't allow me to believe that miracles can happen. 
Now, why is your worldview more privileged than the early church? These people may have been pre-scientific, but friends, they weren't gullible. As a matter of fact, the Jews, the Romans, and the Greeks had absolutely no categories for someone uh, rising uh, from the dead in the middle of history. No one in the first century believed that was possible. And I want to caution you, be careful of cultural arrogance. Unbelief today can be nothing but a product of our culture. Or for that matter, our background, our family of origin, or our co-workers, or, or, or whatever. My point is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ here, Jesus Christ from the dead, not only changed Paul's life, as it changed Matt's life in the video, as it's changed my life, but it changed how Paul spoke on trial. It gave him a fearlessness. Why? Because it had become the focal point of his hope. Paul staked his life on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you? Could you? I mean, think about this. Why would anyone say these things or, or live this way, especially someone as brilliant as Paul, if all along they knew it was a lie? Who would do that? None of us would do that. And so now I want to land this, and I want to look at a couple applications. What does the resurrection mean for us today? Well, the first thing I want to say is it means that there is life after death. A few years ago, Steve Jobs, the founder, actually the co-founder of Apple Computer, famously said, after I die, that's it. I won't exist. And I say that because that's the United States today. It's all our public universities. It's the arts. It's Hollywood. And humanity has been reduced to nothing but a random collection of molecules whirling around in a meaningless universe. And the paradox, the irony is here, uh, we try to live as if our lives have meaning. But there can be no meaning unless meaning is bestowed from above. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ has happened in human history, and what does it do for us? It establishes as a historical reality that we don't merely live in a natural world, we live in a supernatural world where miracles can and do happen. Now this is important for us today. Eastern religions teach us that upon death we become but a drop in the ocean, the impersonal ocean of life. And what's unspoken is 
that upon death we lose the very thing all of us crave for the most, and that is love. But if Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, then the deepest desire of our hearts, what is that deepest desire? It's to love and to be loved, to know and to be known, to experience friendship and intimacy. That deepest desire of our heart will be fulfilled in heaven. Easter means there is life after death. Easter means there is love after death. Now let me take this a step further. Say you knew a girl when she was 10, and you knew her fairly well, but you lost track of her for 25 years, and then suddenly you bump into her and you discover she's now a 35-year-old beauty. And you're thinking, wow, is she different? But yet, in light of your conversation, you realize there's still some same uh, patterns and uh, some consistencies. After Jesus was raised from the dead and he began to appear to his disciples and to the crowd, he, in his resurrection body, he was different, but he was the same. This will be you and I as believers in Jesus Christ in heaven. We will be ourselves. There will be similarities, but we will be infinitely better and infinitely different in heaven. Now, I say this because you are not a bug on the windshield of life. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior, you have this amazing story of redemption. You have a brilliant personal future where the dominant reality, the dominant culture of heaven will be one of love because heaven is a world of love because God is a God of love. And I wonder this morning, do you have this future hope? Do you really believe that there is life after death? About uh, uh, not quite a year after I wrote, I wrote my book on suffering, God gave me a thought. He gave me a statement that just popped into my mind one day because I was so immersed in what the Bible has to say about suffering and pain and uh, reading widely on that subject, and here it is, and you've heard me say it many times. Adversity is inevitable, but misery is a choice. And that choice is the decisions you make each and every day where you're going to place your hope. And one road leads to misery, and the other leads to Jesus. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can handle whatever problems you face. So let me encourage you, you believer in Jesus Christ, to stand up straight with your shoulders back. This world is not your home. You're just passing through. That doesn't mean this world is insignificant. But what it does mean is God's going to carry you in this life. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, or Romans chapter 8, how will he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, not also with him freely give us all things? And second, and I'm done with this, the resurrection means there is forgiveness. Secularism or irreligion today says God does not exist, 
So you do whatever you wanted to do. You make life about yourself, and that's what exactly we're doing. Religion, in contrast to your religion, says, no, no, God does exist. And so, therefore, what you do, what you don't do, how you do it uh, matters. And, and you better do these things well so you can earn your way to heaven. Sort of like earning points on a credit card. Christianity comes along and says, no way. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And he died in your place for your self-centeredness, for your meism, for your pride, for your brokenness, for your sin, so that the moment you believe, you might find forgiveness and hope. And the resurrection is the proof. Now take Costco. My wife loves Costco. I have a, a financial disdain for Costco because you cannot go and buy one sticker, sticker bar. You have to buy a thousand. You can't buy one box of Cheerios. You've got to buy a hundred. Oh, but we save so much money. But where are we going to put a hundred boxes of Cheerios, dear? And you know the drill. You go in, you get your stuff, you buy your stuff, you, you pay for it, you start to walk out, and then some nice man or woman stops you and, and says, can I see your receipt? Why? Because your receipt is proof that you've paid in full. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is exactly the same. It's God's declaration. It's God's receipt. It's God's proof written across the sky that your debt has been paid in full when Jesus died in your place and he was raised from the dead. Easter is the receipt. Hope and forgiveness isn't found by you looking within. It's found by you looking away and grabbing on and receiving and believing in Jesus and trusting him as your Savior. Uh, hope isn't found by getting your life together. You just can't. Hope is found by resting in Jesus, your dying and bleeding Savior who God raised from the dead. Jesus is the hope of the world. And I want to invite you this morning to come to him. And if you've come to him, I want to invite you to keep coming to Jesus. And would you bow with me as we pray? Father, we marvel at what you have done for us this Holy Week, this Good Friday, this Easter. And if there is anyone here right now who has been feeling God speak to their hearts, I want to invite you in the quietness of this moment to receive Jesus, to say yes to Jesus. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. But I want to ask you to pray with me like this. Father, I have sinned against you. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins. Right now, in this moment, Easter 2019, I receive Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. And I give myself, I surrender myself, I submit myself to you. 
Come inside me and change me as you changed Matt. As you have changed millions and millions and millions of people throughout history. And for those of you that know Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you, I want to pray for you right now that you will not spend your days trying to do better. But you will rest in what Jesus Christ has done. And that will melt your heart and cause you to live a life of gratitude and obedience. Amen.